Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello everyone, welcome again to Battle Walks as we stroll across the great battlefields of Europe. Thank you so much for your support in recent weeks with the podcast. It's just gone from strength to strength. And thank you to everyone who has left us reviews. The the way that people find the podcast is by reading reviews, particularly on Apple Podcasts. So thank you so much for those that have gone to Apple Podcasts and contributed. And if you would like to help us out as well, please do the same. Go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review and write a few kind words about us. It's very much appreciated and helps other people find the podcast. Today, we're back to the Somme, a bit of a favourite place for Pete and I. We're going to focus again on the great battle of the Somme, the the opening days, some of the great great wheeling manoeuvres that took place during uh, that confused and very bitter fighting of the opening days of the Battle of the Somme. Um, I suppose I should introduce my uh, my co-host. Pete, welcome back. Thank you, Matt. Uh, good to be with you. And the weather's improving, which is good news. I think we're in that uh, strange window, mate, where things are getting colder here and warmer where you are. But uh, it's uh, it's the, uh, the the great paradox of the Australia-Europe divide. Hopefully, as we've said so many times, hopefully eventually we'll be back together being able to do these podcasts uh, in person. But in the meantime, it's good uh, it's good to be out virtually walking the battlefields. And it's a, it's a pretty good one today, an area that, uh, that I've really enjoyed exploring the, the times that I've done it. It really just tells an amazing story about the Battle of the Somme, doesn't it? Well, it does indeed, and it's one I know uh, very well because the uh, the Ulster Tower has a little visitor centre around the, the curators are good friends of mine, and uh, they normally do tea and coffees. Now we have to do distance tea and coffees as we do at these uh, these terrible times, uh, but it's uh, yeah, it's a place that I regularly go up to to have a catch up with uh, some of the other guides and uh, friends in the area. So we're going to be talking about this whole area around. I mean, the the Ulster Tower on the Somme is an iconic site that it, everyone who's been there will have seen. But we're going to talk about the the whole area around this, aren't we, where the, the Ulster Division fought uh, in, during the Battle of the Somme. 
Yeah, we're, we're going to start uh, from uh, the, the village of Teepval, which is uh, slightly above uh, where the Ulster Tower is. You can look uh, across, uh, slightly down towards the uh, the Ulster Tower. And so we're going to start our walk there and uh, walk down into the valley up the other side towards uh, the wood, Teepval Wood. And then two cemeteries we're going to have a chat about uh, up to the Schwaben Redoubt, the German strong point, and then uh, across to uh, the tower itself, to the Ulster Tower. So we're going to cover quite a few things during this podcast. It's really fascinating, isn't it? Because the Battle of the Somme was, it wasn't so much a huge coordinated assault, but a series of really important bitter actions in a number of spots along the line. And that's really how we're exploring it now. We, we, you know, we've done a number of podcasts on the Battle of the Somme and, and bit by bit we're breaking it down and breaking each sector down and exploring it in detail. And this this ties in very nicely with uh, a podcast we did several weeks ago on the Tietval Memorial right on top of the ridge. So it's it's good that we're breaking down the Somme into these little manageable chunks. I think you have to. And I remember oh, many, many years ago when I first started exploring this area and I used to whiz out on a, on a motorbike. And that's what I would do. You'd explore one area and then kind of go over the ridge on your motorbike on the road or a track and think, ah, that's how it joins to this bit. And then you do it to the next bit. And slowly but surely, you you would work your way down the front, realising how these little sections, these almost individual battles, join to the next part. All part of the 1st of July, all taking place at the same time. But when you look at them individually, you get a feel that that is an individual action where they are all interlinked. They're all happening together and you just need to get that connection as to where they actually join together. But we're going to be today studying the, the 36 Ulster Division and its uh, successful attack against the, the, the Schwaben Redoubt. Now, Pete, before we get started, there is a, a slight controversy here. There's a, there's, a, there's a few political overtones. Let's get those out of the way at the start because, you know, talking about the Ulsters and Ireland and... You know, there's a, there's a few there's a few issues there. So why don't we um let's get that out of the way so we don't have to come back to it again because it is something that comes up whenever we talk about this uh, this division. It does. Well, it's confusing to a lot of people, and it's confusing to me. And I've I've, I've known about the troubles in in Northern Ireland for a long time, and of course, it's very topical at the moment because of of Brexit. It, it's causing problems. We won't go down that route, or else we will end up talking about the political aspects. But the 36 Ulster Division was raised at a at a period. Uh, when there were, there was a potential for a civil war uh, taking place in Ireland. Um, a chap called Sir Edward uh, Carson, who is the main instigator for raising uh, the Ulster Division, uh, was opposing home rule. And in 1913, before the First World War, the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, had been raised with a view for defending Ulster against what may come. Um, and about 10,000 men had been raised in this military unit. Uh he, uh, Sir Edward Carson, basically is saying, right, let's forget about our, our issues, our problems at the moment. Uh, we need to go and, uh, sort, uh, sort Germany out. It needs to be, this is, this is much more important. And so he suggested effectively that the UVF should, uh, well, not exactly disband, but should move over and join a division. Uh, or raise a division. So the 10,000 men, uh, it needs 12,000 men plus reserves to create a division. Uh, and that's what happened. That's the infantry uh, aspect of a division. And so that's what ha- what's uh, what's happened. The UVF have effectively becomes the nucleus, the core of the uh, the 36 Ulster division. Let's talk about the division, Pete, and their um, their experience when they got to the front and, uh, and uh, the lead up to the 1st of July, 1916. Yep. So obviously we can tell this is... Uh, 
I suppose the division is part of this pointing finger of Kitchener, trying to raise this volunteer army to come and uh, uh, to fight the Hun on the on the Western Front, and uh, so that's what, where they come from. Nineteen fourteen is when they with they form. Um, and they are trained in, in the north, in Northern Ireland. And this is partly part of the story because uh, one of the uh, the aspects, the Ulster Tower, is a copy of a tower called Helen's Tower, which was above their, their training areas. And uh, Helen's Tower became, I suppose, uh, the, mo- the most common thing that the soldiers who were training would look up and they'd see it. And it, it just became part of their training as they're, as they're training the division. And so when they were looking, we'll be talking about this later on in the podcast, but when they were looking for a memorial, they decided to use uh, Helen's Tower. So they were trained initially in Northern Ireland, uh, eventually will move across to England and be be based at, at Seaford uh, in Sussex, uh, where they're inspected by Lord Kitchener. And now that gives you a clue as to how well trained they are, that Lord Kitchener can come and watch them marching and being inspected on the 27th of July in 1915. So it means that the majority of their training had been done uh, in Ireland so they were they were almost ready for the off when they came across to Britain um, and uh, then they will be inspected by the king on the 30th of September and obviously you can see what's coming this is the slow build-up before they move across to France and on the 3rd of October they actually uh, 1915 they move uh, to France they then have a bit of a introductory period uh, on the Western Front where they're, they're going in piecemeal and just getting gaining experience and then they're going to be pulled out of the line again and a lot more training, a lot more training uh, behind the lines as were most of the volunteer battalions uh, and divisions uh, that include the uh, the volunteers. They are going to be trained uh, within France and then in 1916 on the, on the 7th of February they actually move as a division into the front line and interestingly, this is where they are going to uh, uh, to fight during the Battle of the Somme. Now, now, some of the divisions didn't do that. They went to other areas and then were moved into their final positions uh, before the Battle of the Somme. But the Ulster Division uh, always is, it's when it's moved into the front line, it's around Teepval Woods and the River Ankh, which we're going to talk about. We will see it when we get to the Ulster Tower. And uh, th- that's the area that they're going to be moved in on the February of 1916. It surprises me how early that was, Pete, that they spent a good solid five months in the trench system before the Battle of the Somme. We, we seem to think of the 1st of July 1916 as this, this great start point, um, but uh, fascinating to think that they were there for five months. They would have known the land very, very well by the time the battle came around. Yeah, they, they would indeed. It's, it's one of the things that I suppose, because for a lot of these Kitchener battalions, the Battle of the Somme is their first uh, action. We seem to think, imagine them just sailing across into the front line at the Battle of the Somme, but that's not the case. Uh, some of them and regularly, uh, I suppose, around uh, the uh, F- French Flanders in the, that very low country, that's where they tended to be put into the line for experience. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when... Uh, the French requested that we should extend our line into the area of the Somme and the Somme ridges, this chalky, uh, 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 I suppose, chalky downland, then uh, that's uh, where they eventually will be moved into, into that area and that's where the Battle of the Somme takes place in this chalky downland. But initially, a lot of the Kitchener battalions started off in, in, the, in the Flanders, the very, very flat area that a lot of us associate with the battlefield. And, of course, that's the big issue here. There's a lot of people who don't know the battlefield and read a lot. So you get a mental image of, of black and white flat landscape covered in mud uh, with, with nothing there at all. Well, this is very different. This is rippling, rolling uh, chalk downland with rivers in between, deep valleys. Um, 
not deep in the sense of uh, of mountainous valleys, but just valleys in a rolling landscape. So it's not flat by any means at all. And tell us a little bit about the specifics of the area where the Ulster Division would attack on the Battle of the Somme. Yeah, it's it's a difficult uh, a difficult attack because, of course, the Germans uh, dug in here. They'd forced the French back in 1914. They'd forced the French back to much closer to Amiens. And when they realised they were not going to take Paris and were going to have that race to the sea, what they start doing is looking behind them and thinking, well, we're, if we're going to you know, not be forced back and we want to hold the land that we've taken, this effectively will be the new border of Germany. What we are going to do is effectively survey that landscape and put in the best positions that we possibly can, and, and then we're going to dig a line, and this will become the new border of Germany. And that's what you have to think this is. So the Schwaben Redoubt uh, is part of this new border of Germany, and this is they are not going to be forced off here. No, this is their view. They are here to stay. And in fact, the, the German division that is uh, that is fighting here has been here since 1914. This is where it it, it was put, you're going to hold this section of the line, and in, in 1916 they are still holding the, the section of the line. Now I'm desperately looking at my notes and trying to remember what the name of this division is, um, we'll talk about it later on, uh, but it's a, it's a German reserve division, can't quite find the... got it! 20, 26th Reserve Division, uh, arrived in 1914, still here in 1916. So that tells you something, they know the area, like the back of their hand. You know, they've, they've worked out the ranges from all of where their machine guns are based, they know they know the ranges. They know exactly uh, what potentially is going to is going to happen. And when the British move in here, that's when they get the warning signs. They think, well, the British are here. Then there's a good uh, chance that this is where the next push is going to be. Well, before we begin the walk, Pete, why don't you just give us a little bit of an overview of how the Ulsters went in the attack here on the first of July? They went very well, and this is this is the unusual aspect here. And I suppose this is why the the memorial commemorating the Ulster Division is here, because there are various other places it could have been. And when you think this is just a two day action, basically, because they're going to be withdrawn uh, at the end of the second day, so it's a two day action. Why on earth would you build a memorial uh, to in an area where it is a disaster overall? This is a complete disaster. The first day of the Battle of the Somme doesn't go well here. In fact, this is the only success to the left of the road which runs from Albert to Bapome, which is the central axis of the battle. This is to the left of it. Everything is a failure on the left-hand side, apart from fighting here. So that's the key. That's why uh, it's seen as a, a great success for the Ulster Division. Unfortunately, on both sides of them, the divisions on either side fail, which means that the German guns can be turned onto them from either side. So they get flanking fire during their attack. We'll talk a little bit more about about the the push to try and take the Schwaben Redoubt, but it is taken, uh, they, and it's an uphill struggle. They come out of the edge of a wood, and we're going to be going to have a look at the wood, uh, Tietval Wood. They come out of the edge of the wood, and they are immediately climbing uphill. But they're going to use some clever tactics, which are not used elsewhere. Actually, when I say clever, they're not clever. It's just that the the uh, the commanders here thought it through and thought, well, we can see potentially what's going to happen, so we're going to try and avoid it. And what is going to happen is the minute that the whistles blow at 7.30 for the attack, the Germans will bring down a heavy bombardment on, on their front line. They know that. That happens everywhere. So what the Ulster Division decides to do is to move forward. They cut saps. Now, a sap is a trench that goes towards your enemy. So they sapped out into no man's land, into a sunken road that is in the middle of no man's land, and that's the sunken road we're going to walk down. Uh, and they sapped into this road, and they, the men lay out there 
before 7.30. So when the bombardment came down, the minute the whistles blew at 7.30, the Ulster Division, or the bulk of it, was already halfway across no man's land. And so their distance to the German trenches meant they could move quickly. They had to be careful of not moving too quickly because our bombardment is still bombarding the German front line. We have no creeping barrage yet. It's not really been invented. So what we do is, at the creeping barrage we've talked about before in previous podcasts, but for those that haven't listened, it means the barrage is moving forward at the same rate that you're attacking. So it protects you. It's like a wall of steel or lead in front of you moving forward at the same speed that you're moving forward. That's not been invented. What we are doing is we bombard the German front line. When the whistles blow, that bombardment lifts to allow our men to to attack the German front line. Now, sadly, of course, it then becomes a race. Can the Germans, who are underground, get up from underground, bringing their machine guns with them and open fire on us as we are crossing no man's land? And sadly, on most of the areas of the Battle of the Somme, that's exactly what happens. The Germans do get up, get their guns operational before we're halfway across no man's land and they mow us down as we're crossing no man's land. Here, because we're already well into no man's land, when we actually attack, we get into the German trenches before they're getting up and we can bomb them as they're coming to the surface and burn it them as they clear, as they clear uh, into their trenches. So it, it's a very successful attack in areas, especially in the areas, it's an area we're going to walk up towards the Schwaben Redoubt. Well, let's begin that walk, Pete. Where are we going to start? Okay, so we're going to walk down the hill. Uh, we're going to we're starting at Teetval Church. So we're walking down uh, the road. This, this is a sunken road. And again, for those that uh, haven't listened to a previous podcast, a sunken road is a road that's literally sunk into the ground. It's normally on a slope, and it's sunk into that ground because of wear. So literally, tr- uh, trucks and, and carts and wagons going up and down the road for centuries in a chalk landscape. They wear into the chalk landscape. And you can imagine the guy that's looking after the road, he comes along, he scrapes away all the mud and the rubbish, he throws it to the side, and in doing so, he's building up the banks on the side as well. So we get a double whammy effect, the banks go up, the road goes down, and we get a sunken road. So we're going to walk down the sunken road, which takes us into the middle of no man's land. And on our left, eventually, will be Teetval Wood, and that's where the Ulster Division is gathered. Part of it, they also drop down into the valley and across the River Onk at the bottom of the valley and up the other side towards Beaumont Hamel, another famous place, one that we haven't uh, produced a podcast yet on Beaumont Hamel. Have we? Have we done Beaumont Hamel? I don't think we have. No, we haven't yet. It is definitely, uh, we definitely will very soon. Yeah, we'll be doing one on Beaumont Hamel later, space. Uh, later on. Yep. Um, and uh, so Teetval Wood on the left-hand side. And what we're going to do as, as we start walking in front of the wood, we're going to turn right just almost as we hit a cemetery. We have a cemetery on the left, a Commonwealth Wargrave Cemetery called Connaught Cemetery. We're going to come back here. That's on the left-hand side. We're going to turn right and we're going to go up a road which will take us to another cemetery called uh, Mill Road Cemetery. Um, and um, and uh, we're going to walk up to there and to the Schwaber Redoubt, which is just beyond it. It's actually on the cemetery and uh, just uh, just beyond it. Um, so that's where we're heading now. Um, it's a beautiful uh, walk. This I have to say, it's it's. Uh, if, the, if there had been no fighting here, if you were just out for a Sunday walk or an evening walk or a morning walk, then this is a beautiful walk because you're going to get lovely views when you get up to the cemetery, and it's. 
that horrible juxtaposition that we get on these battlefields, it's almost the more beautiful it becomes, the more horrendous was the was the fighting here. And the fighting sure was horrendous here. And the landscape that we are now looking at is nothing like what was here during the, the fighting. It is it is that pitted landscape of shell fire and, uh, uh, and death and destruction and trenches. No concrete again. I've got a little uh, comment in my notes here. It says German concrete uh, and then exclamation mark with a question mark. That's because there were very little concrete on the Somme. If you've got nice chalk, which you can cut into with a sharpened spade, you can create trenches that need very little revetting. There's none of the A-frames that were used to support the trench walls in uh, around Ypres or in Flanders. Here it's just straightforward cut into the chalk. It doesn't need revetting. Perhaps a bit of duckboarding at the bottom to stop you sliding about because it gets a bit slippy when it's wet. Um, your fire step can be cut into it, but the, the great thing is you can go underground. Um, by George, the Germans went underground everywhere here and they went to a depth that made sure that they were absolutely safe from uh, the bombardments. Now, the entrances could be collapsed, but they made multiple entrances in these dugouts. They were they were learning their trade as they went along, and so the, the dugouts here, the underground chambers, were very well constructed, and it meant that the bulk of the German army during the bombardments of the Somme, this is all the way along the front of the Somme, could get underground and get out of, uh, out of those bombardments. Pete, what I really like about these cemeteries on the Somme is it's actually a fascinating thing about the battlefields. When we spoke about Tynecott Cemetery up in Belgium uh, many weeks ago on the podcast, we were talking about the huge concentration of bodies that came in in that, in that shattered landscape, how years after the war they were still finding bodies and bringing them in and creating these huge cemeteries. The thing I love about the Somme is each of these cemeteries tells a little story and, in, and is in a, in a location very relevant to the fighting that took place around it. And, and, and this one's no exception, is it? No, Mill Road Cemetery... Um, and and just to, just to avoid confusion, there is an area in, uh, in in Northern Ireland. I think it's in Belfast called Mill Road. This is not a reference to that. This is a reference to the fact that the road led down to a mill. So uh, in the the Valley of the Onk, which is on our left as we walk up towards the uh, towards the cemetery. So that's where the name comes from. Um, and this is very much. Uh, a battlefield clearance cemetery. So in other words, this was dangerous even when we forced the Germans back a little bit. We didn't force them back very far here. And it's not until the spring of 1917 when the Germans start falling back to their Hindenburg line. Again, we've talked about it in previous podcasts. Um, but for those that haven't listened, the Germans in the spring of 1917 will uh, will fall back to the Hindenburg line, leaving this area completely. And that's the first time that we can really clear the battlefield. So this cemetery was created in that clearance uh, of, of the spring of 1917. 260 burials uh, are created here. But then after the war, they're going to find an awful lot more, more bodies here as they, uh, as they plough the land and plant the trees again. And also some cemeteries, the smaller cemeteries within this area are going to be closed down. And this is going to become a concentration cemetery. So by the end of the period when it's, uh, it's completed, we have 1,304 uh, soldiers buried or commemorated here. But sadly... Again, and you always have this when you're bringing bodies in from elsewhere, they tend to have lost their identities. So uh, 815 of those soldiers brought into this cemetery, actually, uh, we don't know who they are. So they're, they're not identified individually. They'd be identified sometimes by a regiment, but not identified individually. 
And the layout of the cemetery is a little bit unusual, isn't it, Pete? It is. It's. Uh, I mean, it's a fascinating cemetery. It's got. A, it's got a very interesting history. Um, because it was created during the war, it was decided that this would uh, remain. And so, an architect, in this case Herbert Baker, uh, Sir Herbert Baker, he will be the the gentleman who will will design around existing graves. But he had a problem, or a, perhaps wasn't his problem, but a problem occurred is that the the headstones in the central section kept moving, and if you've been uh, as a Many will you, uh, many of you will have been, um, or will have seen pictures of these cemeteries. The rows tend to be dead straight in in a lot of the certainly the concentration cemeteries where they have the time to sort sort the design out, uh, and they just wouldn't stay dead straight because they kept falling over and leaning strangely, and, and it was because the land underneath is moving because the central section of the cemetery is built directly over a, a German uh, bunker complex. And as those move and collapse over the years and sink slightly, then the, the surface kept on moving. So they decided, very unusually, to lie the central section, the headstones down. So they li- they're lying flat on the ground. Uh, there are a couple of other places that they do this. Uh, sandy conditions near the coast. You get some cemeteries that the headstones are, are lying down. But this, I think, is... I'll probably be wrong here, but it's one of the only uh, cemeteries on the battlefield where the headstones are lying down. Now, I know I'm going to get lots of people say, that's not right. Uh, but it's, um, yeah, I can't think of another off the top of my head. And it certainly is the most famous one uh, where the, the headstones are lying down flat. It's also a great place to come and contemplate. And I'm just going to go off on one of my little private tangents here. Uh, I once brought a chap here who'd lost his uh, his great uncle, uh, had been killed in this charge uh, of the, the Irish coming up the slope towards the cemetery. And I was due to take him on a battlefield tour all day. And it was going to go all over the Somme battlefield. And you know where we spent the whole day? We spent it in Mill Road Cemetery. He actually said to me, he said, Pete, can you tell me the story of, of elsewhere, uh, but do it from here? And so we found ourselves a nice comfy section of wall to sit on. It was a beautiful summer's day, lovely and sunny. And we sat there and I told him stories of the battlefield and of uh, of the Ulster Division coming up towards us. And that's where we spent the whole day. And we just wandered down for a cup of tea at the Ulster Tower and then came back up to the Mill Road Cemetery and continued. So it was a, it was a lovely day. And I kind of enjoyed being with him because he was enjoying just sitting where his great uncle had sadly lost lost his life. And what about the original stone of remembrance in this cemetery, Pete? Yeah, well, that's fascinating as well. And we know this: uh, the Commonwealth War Graves are opening up their records more and more. We can learn more about about layouts and designs. And and we know that the stone of remembrance at one time was going to sit right in this middle section. Um, and again, it was decided that uh, because of the movement, they wouldn't uh, uh, place it there. And they decided to instead to to create an area that was uh, like a seated area in in the middle there. And we can still see where that was but we had the same the same problem with that this seated area in the middle and again we've talked about this before this cemetery has a a covered area so you can you can get out of the rain if you want to here Um, but there are also little seats uh, in the walls about so you can sit down and contemplate and it was designed to do that but there were more seating in this in this central area but again it kept moving and when it's very dry you can actually still see the marks in the lawns where it it once uh, it once was located but again it it, they couldn't uh, they couldn't keep it there because of the movements of the landscape beneath now this cemetery is sited very close to the, the the central point on the battlefield the key reason that the Ulster division were even attacking here the Schwaben readout 
Tell us about that, Pete. And can, can we actually see the Schwaben readout from the cemetery? Are we on the Schwaben readout when we're in the cemetery? I wish we could. But the, as I said, there's no concrete, so there's nothing left. Um, the, it was all trenches and dugouts and basically underground. So there's nothing at all. We can't see anything at all. Obviously, if you walk carefully, and I'm going to be doing a podcast uh, about this uh, later on. Literally, uh, I, I enjoy walking the battlefields for reasons that I will explain uh, during the podcast. But you can you can walk on the landscape, and you really do get a feel of what was going on by what's left in the landscape. You don't need a metal detector. You don't need uh, a shovel or a spade. You just need a mark one eyeball, and you need uh, no crops to be in the field. And you can walk, and you can still see the cartridges piled in areas where the Maxim guns were firing from. So that's the only clue as to what was was happening here. The Schwaben Redoubt was basically starts uh, in the cemetery, then carries on up over, over the ridge. So it's a, a lot further back than a lot of people imagine. And it, you begin to realise that there was quite a distance. And to get to the Schwaben Redoubt, there, was, there were trenches in front of it that are not, strictly speaking, part of it that you had to take before you could get to the Schwaben Redoubt. It wasn't a, a, a front-line position. It's the height and the view is what makes it such a, uh, a difficult position to take. So we, uh, we can walk uh, in the right times and go and have a look, but there's actually not a great deal to see. Now, I'm just going to read an excerpt from a book called The Old Front Line by John uh, Mansfield, who is visiting this area in 1917 um, uh, after the Germans have fallen back uh, to the Hindenburg Line. And I'll just do his description of what, uh, what he could see at, at that time. At the eastern end of the causeway, the old mill road rises towards the Schwaben Redoubt, so it's coming up from uh, from the river. All the way up the hill, the road is steep, rather deep and bad. It is worn into the chalk and shows up very white in sunny weather. Before the battle, it lay about midway between the lines, but it was always patrolled at night by our men, hence that's why the Ulster Division could move into it before the attack. The ground on both sides of it is almost more killed and awful than anywhere in the field. On the English or southern side, we should be saying Irish really here, distant from 100 to 200 yards is the shattered wood, burnt, dead and desolate. On the enemy side, at about the same distance, is the usual black enemy wire, much tossed and bunched by our shells, covering a tossed and tumbled chalky and filthy parapet. Our own old line is an array of rotted sandbags filled with chalk flint covered in burnt wood. One need only look at the ground to know that the fighting here was very grim and to the death. Near the road and up the slope to the enemy, the ground is littered with relics of our charges, mouldy packs, old shattered scabbards, rifles, bayonets, helmets, curled, torn, rolled and starred. Clips of cartridges and very many graves. Many of the graves are marked with strips of wood torn from packing cases with penciled inscriptions. An unknown British hero, in loving memory of private so-and-so. Two unknown British heroes, an unknown British soldier, a dead Fritz. That gentle slope to the Schwaben is covered with such things. Passing these things by some lane through the wire and clambering over the heaps of earth which were once the parapet one enters the Schwaben, where so much life was spent, as in so many places on this battlefield, the first thought is, why were they in an why they were in an eerie here? In other words, a high place of viewing point. Our fellows had no chance at all. There is no wonder then that the approach is strewn with graves.
So this is at the period when the graves have not been gathered together and this cemetery uh, that we're standing in uh, has been created. Just uh, such a graphic description, isn't it? Really the first battlefield tourists were those soldiers that came to these famous battlefields in the years immediately after the uh, the fighting. I know a lot of Australians went to Pozieres in 1917 as well for the same reason, to walk the ground of the sites of these famous actions. Really quite extraordinary. I think it is extraordinary because, of course, they're going to be involved in many cases in in epic actions uh, in their own right. And I think it was it was they needed a bit of knowledge and a bit of knowledge and a bit of feeling of what it must have been like you get from looking at an old battlefield. Well, a not so old battlefield. And so I think that's uh, that's why they came. Just before we move on, Pete, just just touch on the word redoubt because it's an unusual word. It's a military term. What what actually is a, a redoubt? Yeah, a redoubt, a redoubt, however you want to say it. I always say redoubt, but I may be wrong. Um, uh, it's basically, it's a, def- a defended position that's got all-round defence. So in other words, it's not really got a back. So it means if you come at it from the front, you try to get round the back, it's just another front, really. So it's it's defended from all directions. In other words, it can stand alone. When everything around it has, has given way, then a redoubt can continue to operate in a standalone position. Which is pretty much what happened uh, here during the fighting on the Somme. Where are we? Um, where are we heading to next? Yeah, so uh, we're going to walk back down the road again uh, onto the uh, the sunken road, and we're going to just uh, cross over. And uh, shall I decide? Shall we go into the into the wood first, or shall we go and have a look at the uh, uh, the cemetery? Um, I think we'll uh, since we've just done one cemetery, we've just done a Mill Road cemetery. I think we'll we'll go into the wood itself and go and have a look at the the wood. Now you would have to go if you were uh, visiting. Um, uh, we can just walk straight in uh, because we're uh, because we can. Um, but you would go up to the Ulster Tower and you can book your your visit because these uh, these visits have to be uh, guided. Uh, and in fact, uh, many years ago, my son used to guide uh, within the wood from the Ulster Tower. So I have a, another uh, uh, another connection with the wood here. Now the 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 wood itself, I think, is absolutely fascinating. It wasn't bought until 1990, and it was bought by the Somme Association. So I should explain: the Somme Association owns the uh, the Ulster Tower, looks after the Ulster Tower, uh, and they decided they wanted a bit more than just the Ulster Tower. So in 1990, um, uh, they uh, oh no, sorry, I'm getting it, I'm getting it wrong. 1990, they were formed. I'm reading my notes wrong here. Uh, the uh, the actual wood was purchased in purchased in 2004. So just before I arrived, they uh, they purchased the wood here, um, and the wood was bought as uh, to, to enhance really the visitors' experience of coming to the the battlefields of the Ulster Division, and. They've done a superb job because they didn't just purchase the wood, which has the remnants of the frontline trenches and it uh, has uh, communication trenches. It's got actually everything in the wood that you would need if you were going to set up a little museum. And that's exactly what they're going to do. But they brought in archaeologists in working parties and they archaeologically uh, excavated a section of frontline trench, a section of communication trench, a dugout, a bunker, um, a mortar pit. And as each one was excavated and they uh, discovered what was in there, they then put it back into the condition it would have been on the day that the Ulster Division attacked. Even to the extent where the sandbags they're going to use, modern sandbags are bigger than First World War sandbags. They wanted to reproduce exactly what would, had been there because they could see the imprints. The, the archaeologists did, did it slow, slowly when they were clearing and, and clearing out the trenches and redigging them, that they could see where the sandbags had been, where pickets had held back the sandbags and where chicken wire was used to stop the chalk crumbling. And all of that was put back. So it's been archaeologically 
uh, rebuilt. What this means, interestingly, is that it has to be worked on every year because you realise that the trenches, you wonder, what did the men do in the trenches? Well, the trenches are constantly crumbling. You know, this does this in a landscape, it doesn't stay, uh, even without shelling, it doesn't stay in good condition. You have to work on it constantly, re-sandbag, the sandbags rot through in about six months. And so it's very, very uh, uh, visually accurate because it is it is decaying by itself and has to be constantly worked on. So it's a uh, it's a fantastic place. I couldn't, I can't recommend it enough that you uh, you you book a tour through the uh, the Ulster Tower to go and have a look at the uh, the preserved uh, positions within the wood. So you can spend a good hour walking around, and when you're guided round, you will be, it will explain uh, what's going on in the wood. You'll find a lot of the trench names are Scottish. And it's an interesting concept, isn't it? Who names them? Who names these trenches? These are our trenches. Well, they're normally named by the people that take them over or dig them. And in this area, it was a Scottish battalion that uh, moved here in 1915 when we took these areas over from the French. Now, you can imagine trying to copy the French names for these trenches would have been impossible. So we have to rename them and we name them with with Scottish names. Uh, And so we we get uh, a lot of the trenches, uh, Ross uh, Castle, Elgin Avenue. I won't go on. There's lots of them, but they're they're all Scottish. Um, And so there's a section of the front line, a sap leading out towards the road, a communication trench. There's even a French dugout. The the archaeological dugout, an old French dugout that had been here before we arrived. Um, there's also a dugout where a, a brigadier called Crozier was supposed to have uh, have been based. Uh, he's a fairly famous uh, uh, character from this period. Um, a trench mortar position, which is, if you haven't seen a trench mortar position, and one of the best places to actually see one is to watch the film called uh, the, uh, the Battle of the Somme, produced at the time. Um, and that shows one of the trench mortars being fired. And uh, again, my grandfather involved, he was supplying ammunition to the trench mortars. So there's another connection for me here. And I once took around a family whose officer had commanded the trench mortar detachment in the in the mortar pit that has been excavated and recreated. And then there's an enormous great crater, which has puzzled people for a long, long time. And we're fairly certain now lots of historians have looked at it and talked about it. And we've come to the conclusion it was caused by the demonage. Uh, The people clearing the battlefields in the 1920s, 30s and still clear them. And we believe that they've packed lots of explosives into an underground bunker here and then detonated it to get rid of it. And it created an enormous crater uh, because it's not marked on any trench maps um, so the only real explanation is it was created after the war, and that's the only reason that it could be created is by uh, explosives. So it's it's well worth exploring. It certainly is a fascinating site, and I loved your description there, Pete, of how the trenches are destined to return to the earth. It's, it's, it's a fascinating aspect of it, and we've seen it on battlefields all over the world. I remember in Gallipoli years ago, probably in the 1990s, when they first dug out trenches at the Neck on Gallipoli, but then um, didn't have a. There was some arguments about how they should be maintained, and didn't have a proper plan in place. And so it was fascinating to come back year after year and see the trenches slowly returning to uh, to Mother Nature. It was a great indication that uh, nothing that we were doing here was particularly permanent, and um, and just the work that was involved for the the poor the poor soldiers in the front line. I mean, we know why the Aussies were called diggers. The the, the just the work that was involved to, with working parties to try and keep those trenches stable. And to even you know just maintain them in that uh, that in that landscape, extraordinary. It is. Uh, do you know there's a very strange effect that you get here? Um, I've been involved in in the clearing of these trenches, and I've, in fact, I've worked in se- several of the bunkers, clearing out some of the the bunkers here. So it's something that I've been involved in. 
but you can go away over the winter and come back the next year and the trenches are thinner. And you look and you think, how is that happening? And the squeezing, they actually literally squeeze together slowly. This is chalk. And you're thinking, how does it move? But it does. And they get closer together. It's just extraordinary. Um, and, and what's great about that is that you realise how much work had to be done. And certainly these working parties come out every year from uh, from Northern Ireland to come in with, with archaeologists and to sometimes to create another little section as well. They expand a little bit. And so there's another little bit for you to look at. But a lot of it is working to keep the trenches in good condition. So, yeah, well worth going to look at. Well, let's uh, farewell the wood now and head uh, to another cemetery nearby, Connaught Cemetery, which is another good one to uh, to explore. Well, Connaught Cemetery is, I have to say, the very first time I came to this area and saw Connaught Cemetery, and I thought it's going to be full of Irish um, because of where it is. It's right in front of the wood, so effectively it's in between the, uh, the sunken road, which they move out to, and the, their frontline trenches. Uh, and so you'd expect it to be full of Irish. Well, there are an awful lot of Irish uh, soldiers buried in here, but there's everybody else as well. Uh, you know, once the Ulster Division had, had left after their two two and a half days uh, in the front line, just over two days, then other people moved in. They had casualties there buried here, and again, this became a concentration cemetery. So it only had 228 burials uh, at the time of the armistice, uh, when at the end of the war, uh, it's now got 1,268, of which half are unknown. Again, so we have that terrible figure of half the guys that are buried here, here uh, are unknown. It's a beautiful cemetery because it's got the wood as a backdrop. You can hear the birds and uh, in, in the wood and the pheasants. And there's boar in the wood as well. Uh, you, occasionally, if you're very there in the morning, you can hear the boar sniffling about in the wood. Um, and then from the cemetery, you look up and you're looking up uh, to your slight left to the Ulster Tower, which is uh, uh, right on its way up towards the um, the Schwaben Redoubt. And you can see Mill Road Cemetery. It's just a fantastic place. I also have to say that um, some time ago now they widened the road to make it uh, much uh, much easier to park. It used to be a little bit fiddly to park. It's a very thin sunken road, and there's a very moving aspect of that widening uh, uh, the road. Uh, and it was done in 2013. It was done really as we approached the centenaries of the fighting on on the Somme battlefields or the battlefields of the First World War, and. Uh, of course, wherever you dig something new in this area below the normal plough area, then you're liable to hit the remains of soldiers. And, and sure enough, they did as they widened the road right in front of Connaught Cemetery. So literally in the corner of Connaught Cemetery, but on outside of the cemetery wall, they found the remains of the soldier. And unbelievably, he was identifiable because he, he, his identity disc was still there. So Sergeant David Harkness Blakey, MM, Military Medal of the Royal Inniskilling uh, Fusiliers, killed on the 1st of July as he climbed out of his uh, uh, trench. In fact, in, in his records, he was last seen badly wounded on the wire, on the German wire. Um, and he was uh, discovered, and he now lifted him over the wall, and he now is uh, is in, in the cemetery uh, with a military headstone, a Commonwealth War Graves headstone. They also found two other soldiers. They were identified regimentally. They're also buried in the cemetery, but sadly, uh, no chance of identifying them uh, individually. So they're buried beside uh, him as well. At the same time, they found the gas shell, which the digger hit and set off. And everybody that was involved in it had to do a runner. As it went, shh, uh, you don't hang about if gas is, uh, if gas is leaking. And um, they still find gas shells in this area, uh, as well. Uh, so yeah, so it's, um, anytime you dig in these areas, then it would be almost unthinkable for you not to find something or sadly, occasionally somebody. Uh, and, uh, uh, as I say, 
uh, Sergeant uh, Blakey was is now buried in the cemetery. So it's lovely that he's now remembered. Uh, it was a beautiful service uh, where they managed to track down relatives and they came out uh, for his uh, for his burial. Isn't that just an ominous statement, Pete? Last seen badly wounded on the wire. Yeah, that, it is. That is yeah. that conjures up all sorts of images of of his sad end and being. I've I've read accounts of of that first day on the Somme and, you know, the poor Brits getting tangled in the German wire and then the Germans, after having no one else to shoot at, then, you know, kept uh, kept, kept their fire up at the people tangled in the barbed wire. Just horrific. I mean, there's nothing... We, we've got to keep reminding ourselves whenever we do these podcasts that there's nothing glorious about anything we're doing here. It's a, it's a tale of misery, pain and sadness in so many cases. But that's why it's important to remember. It's why it's important to stand in that cemetery next to Sergeant Blakey's grave and... And just you know, have, give him a few thoughts, the poor bugger, about his sad end on the German wire. Horrific. Yeah. And I think it's great to be to be thankful that that that, that people care enough when they've hit these uh, these human remains to to be careful and and to to exhume them and 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 hopefully give uh, some of them that opportunity to have a have a, a named place of burial. Um, because of course his his name will be on the Teepval Memorial to the missing and still will be on there because the names are not taken off. So he's now got the luxury of being named in two locations. He'll his name will be on the Teepval Memorial to the missing and he's now got a grave as well. So so we can actually commemorate him twice if we want to. Well, now we're going to leave the cemetery and and head to the key memorial feature on the battlefield, the Ulster Tower. It's a, it's quite a striking memorial. Often when I'm leading an Australian tour, we we usually don't stop there. Um, but we point it out every time we go past because it's quite an extraordinary sight on the in the middle of the Somme battlefield. It is, and uh, I think it's um, it's important for several reasons. It's got good facilities, and you know uh, from my, some of my previous uh, podcasts, facilities are crucial on the battlefield. Uh, it's also got good coffee, so or tea even. In fact, they have a brand of tea that comes from Northern Ireland, which which is very good. So you can get a good cup of tea and uh, and use the facilities. It's a great place to sit down in the summer. It's a fantastic area, and and historically just amazing you know, to to actually be there. We've done previously done, uh, produced a podcast on the Australian National Memorial uh, at Villas Bretonneux, and that was the last of the large m- memorials, the national memorials, to be created, not uh, completed until 1938. Well, this is the other end of the stick. Uh, it's not a, a national memorial; it is just commemorating the Ulster Division. But for a lot of people in the in Northern Ireland, certainly, this is something that they they would percolate to uh, as as the, their major memorial, and. Uh, it was uh, it's the first memorial to be uh, completed extraordinary uh, actually inaugurated on the 19th of november 1921 so to say they got it up quickly would be an understatement so they actually purchased the land now the french government didn't exactly give land well it did it gave it in perpetuity in other words it's for forever it's yours you can use it for forever actually it's still part of france but but you can use it for forever well this is not that this was actually bought uh, uh by uh, by donations irish uh, irish people got together and they paid for it uh, and uh, uh, they then they then built their memorial and it is a, it is a fantastic memorial uh, sadly in some ways, you can no longer walk to the top. Actually, I'm not so sure that that's not such a, a good thing. It's a very sm- small area at the top, and lots of people going up there. Lots of people visit. I think it would look a bit odd with people up at the top of it. So we can't go to the top to get the views, and that was the idea originally. But it's now the uh, the caretakers the, of the 
the site itself and the woods and the visitor center that's where they live it's a fantastic place to live but they live within the within the tower itself uh, we have a a little it feels like a chapel almost it's a little uh, a little chapel on the first floor so as you as you go in and then it's their accommodation the next two uh, the next two floors up uh, it's it's a beautiful place uh, as i say a copy of helen's tower in northern ireland um, i had the luxury a, a few years ago uh, not luxury that's not uh, not the right word i had an opportunity a few years ago uh, to visit helen's tower they were renovating it to go inside and to see how similar it is to the ulster tower i've i know the curators and the previous curators of the ulster tower so i've been into their apartments a few times and it is um it, it's actually slightly smaller than helen's tower but it's uh it's it's still a fantastic uh fantastic location so inaugurated in in 1921 um, and uh, by Field Marshal uh, Sir Henry Wilson, he was the guy that uh, that that opened it, um, and it goes right the way to to almost the end of the war on the seventeenth of November, so almost a year after the the ending of the war, eleventh of November in nineteen eighteen, seventeenth uh, of November nineteen nineteen, it was proposed at the town hall in Belfast that this memorial should be built, uh, and uh, and it was very quickly. It's interesting, Pete. The um, climbing up to the viewing platform at the top, the the, the outside part. Uh, I've only ever been up there once, but uh, I was fascinated when I was up there to be pointed out to me that there's a swastika carved into the stone up there, obviously left by a German soldier during the Second World War. So it, I imagine that's a really fascinating and bizarre chapter of history that you've got these German soldiers reoccupying the ground that their fathers fought so desperately to 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 hold. And now they're coming back triumphantly 20, 20 odd years later and um, touring the sites, going, making their way around, visiting all these sites and, and in some cases like this one, leaving their mark. It's it's one of my little uh, sidelines is to try and as uh, people will know who have listened to the podcast before that I'm a, a bit of a collector of memorabilia of the First World War, especially photographs and documentation. And I, I've tried to get pictures of German soldiers standing in front of First World War memorials or cemeteries because uh, it just it's a very strange juxtaposition to see them back and looking at our cemeteries. Uh, but there's a, a fantastic story, and I have this is half a story, I'm afraid, for those of you that like to follow up on what we're talking about because i can't remember where uh, where this is but there is a great account of the uh, the uh, curator of the memorial in 1940 just managing to get away he just left the tower there were no vehicles left everybody had gone who was going to go and he left it so late that he's trying to thumb a lift standing on the road outside of the tower with his family to try and get to the coast to try and get back to the uh, to Britain. And it's an absolutely magical story of luck that gets him to the coast and on one of the last ships to leave France before all the ports are captured or blockaded. So it's a, a great story. I can't tell you where to read that story because I can't remember where I where I picked it up, but it is very interesting. We were talking about the, um, the the graffiti left by the German soldier, and I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before, but uh, a few years ago I was recording a documentary um, at uh, a number of sites, and we spent several days at Bertong Chateau, which was the Australian headquarters during 1918. And during the downtime from filming, and anyone who's ever worked in TV knows there's a lot of downtime, um, I walked every, I explored every corner of the massive walls of that chateau looking for graffiti because I thought over the over the centuries there must be graffiti and I found a lot I found a lot of old graffiti a little bit from the first world war but quite a bit again from the second world war both British soldiers 
who had occupied the, the area in 1940, and then Germans who'd come and occupied it for, uh, for four years afterwards. So again, a little bit of a side note, but um, it's, it's, it's always fascinating, these, these little links with the history between the First and the Second World War. And of course, the most famous link between the Second and First World Wars in this area was Adolf Hitler's very well-documented visit in 1940 when he came through all these sites and visited his old stomping ground from the, uh, from the First World War. So just, just extraordinary, the, uh, the, the, the connection uh, only 20 years down the track. Well, there's not a little connection from today. Uh, today, I've been literally visiting V1 sites. And one of the things I also do is I look at uh, any chalk-built churches. And there are a lot of the churches in the rear areas here are, are made of chalk. And I've been looking for graffiti on the sides of them. And I've been with Nigel uh, Stevens, who's actually uh, the uh, uh, curator at the Ulster Tower uh, today as well. So I've actually uh, so very relevant to what we're we're talking about about today. And interesting, we found uh, an American uh, Aero Squadrons uh, signatures of of a couple of chaps uh, serving in an American Aero Squadron that signed their names in pencil on a on a church wall, and it's up under the eaves almost, and it survived. So uh, yeah, that's that. I've got a little bit of research to do tomorrow. Absolutely extraordinary, Pete. Like always, I'm jealous of the history that uh, is, is literally right under your nose. But uh, uh, anything else we want to talk about with uh, with the Ulster Tower? I mean, there's so much to say about it and so little to say about it all at the same time because it's really it's just there. It's just this wonderful, you know, ancient looking tower which just stands there, dominates the battlefield, and, and speaks volumes about the, what the men of the Ulster Division did there. Well, it's, there's a few things to say. I suppose it's changed over the years uh, slightly. Um, there was an Orange Order memorial that used to be on the side of the road, and we're going to talk about the uh, Orangemen, uh, uh, fairly famous in in the north of Ireland, a, a Protestant organisation. Their memorial is now moved up close to the uh, tower, just tucked in behind the tower, so there's that to look at. There's also a memorial as you come in, c- uh, commemorating the nine Victoria Crosses that were uh, awarded to men of the Ulster Division during the fighting on the Somme, three of which were awarded on the first day, so the day we've just been talking about. about uh, again, the Ulster Division was awarded th- uh, three Victoria Crosses, or men, should I say, serving in the Ulster Division, awarded. I'm just going to mention them uh, at the end. Um, also, a few things. The trees have changed. There used to be a line of trees heading up to the uh, to the tower, and each one of those trees, as you walked up the track to the tower, had been uh, paid for by a family, and they had a plaque a, a little uh, brass plaque at the bottom of it. All of those plaques were found recently. That The trees were cut down, and when the trees were cut down, and we're not quite sure at what period the trees were cut down and the plaques were actually removed, but they were they were rediscovered uh, a few years uh, a few years ago. And that was quite interesting to see who had donated money to have their trees planted in the, uh, in, the in the wood itself. And just a final, uh, just a fascinating little story. In the last, I suppose, in the time I've been here, so in the last 20 years, I know of two cases of gold sovereigns being found in the fields around the Ulster Tower. And we think that one of the officers probably went into action with some gold stitched into his tunic somewhere in case that he was captured and he could buy his way out. Or, or that's, the, that's the only thing we can think of. But uh, certainly two, uh, I am aware of two gold sovereigns being found uh, around the, uh, the Ulster Tower. So it's an interesting little by the by. I keep my eyes open. You never know. Um, uh, so, uh, Victoria Crosses. Who was awarded the Victoria Cross? Well, there's a, probably one of the most famous uh, Victoria uh, 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 Crosses awarded on the 1st of July. And in fact, it's the first one to be awarded. Uh, William Frederick, uh, Frederick uh, McFasdine, known as Billy McFasdine. Um, he was awarded the Victoria Cross. Unbelievably bravely, he 
dropped or knocked over by accident a, a box of grenades and two of the pins came out of them and he threw his body onto the grenades and was killed but in doing so he saved the lives of multiple men who were sitting uh, uh, around him um, and he was awarded the Victoria Cross for, for that unselfish uh, act. Uh, Robert Quigg was also awarded the, uh, the Victoria Cross um, and I don't want to, we haven't got time to read all these citations so I'm going to leave uh, other people to uh, to uh, look them up if they wish to and Eric Norman Franklin Bell who was a captain in the 9th Battalion Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers he was also awarded the Victoria Cross and these were all awarded around where we stand uh, now but but the nine are all named on a, a big stone uh, that uh, was uh, put uh, on the approach track up to the uh, tower a few years ago I tell you what it's one thing to win a Victoria Cross by taking on the German army and capturing machine gun positions and single-handedly saving the day it's another thing entirely to throw yourself onto a grenade just before it explodes to save the lives of the men around you absolutely absolutely extraordinary bravery and what a well-deserved victoria cross it, it was indeed and uh and certainly that uh it, it's it's well known because uh the king also said some again looking at my my notes quickly um uh, this is what uh, what the king said. It is a matter of sincere regret to me that the death of Private uh, Mcfazian uh, deprived me of the of uh, of the pride of personally conferring upon him the Victoria Cross, the greatest of all rewards for valor and devotion to duty, and that was signed by the king. So, uh, um, uh, so it's uh, yeah, he, he, his his Victoria Cross was uh, was well deserved. And I, I must apologise if I'm pronouncing his name wrong. I always have a problem with. <laughs> With his name, it's a difficult one. Where I grew up uh, in West Wyalong, the the spelling was slightly different, but McFadgen was uh, was yeah. a very common name <laughs> in the district. So it, it may well be uh, it may be all we're hearing of that, but it's an unusual spelling. I know, I know, I always pronounce it wrong. So I know there'll be people going, "What is he saying?" But anyway, <laughs> I blame let's my. Uh, let's not let that take away from his uh, <laughs> my from his um, very brave act. <laughs> Um, we're, nearly, we're nearing the end of the walk now, Pete. There's only a, a couple of other minor little things to look at. And um, one of them is the Pope's Nose. Talk to me about the Pope's Nose, a site I visited, I think, probably in my first visit to the Somme. I should do a shout out here to Tom Morgan, who is a dear friend of ours, another guide that we that we know very, very well, a, a wonderful guide on the battlefields. And mm-hmm. my first visit to the Somme battlefields in about 2002, I think it was, I actually ran into Tom. I'd... I'd I'd communicated via email with Tom a lot about the sites I should visit. I ran into him on my first night in the Somme and he did me a little mud map on the back of a few pieces of paper and napkins and backs of envelopes and things. And I used that to uh, make my way around the Somme battlefield. So I always have very fond memories of this uh, of this area and, and just you know picking, picking my way around the battlefields following Tom's excellent notes. And the Pope's Nose was definitely one of those sites that I visited during that, uh, during that bimble around the battlefields. Well, the Pope's nose is uh, obviously we're going back uh, sadly to the, uh, the the religious divides of uh, of, uh, of Ireland, um, but the Pope's nose is a observation position, very often described as a machine gun position, much too small as for a machine gun position. It is an observation position uh, that once was literally just where a chap could uh, come up from uh, from underground uh, from the trenches, and uh, he would be inside a concrete uh, uh, viewing. Uh, platform almost with a slot at the front so he could look across no man's land so it's right on the front line positions it gives you a view uh, into the wood 
uh, sadly, it's lost its cap over the years, but that actually means you can climb inside it, and if you want to, you can you can stand in it uh, to get a, a feel of uh, what it was like to be in that the, the German front line there. It's marked on all the trench maps, so we can see it straight away where it actually is, and uh, it's a, a very rare survivor and a very rare bit of, of concrete. And you know, I'm quite interested in for those that have listened previously uh, in in concrete being very well, very good German concrete. This, uh, so it's uh, it's it still survives uh, today. Um, it's literally just at the edge of a track so you can quite easily see it at this at the moment you can see it very clearly because the crops are still low in a, in a few months you won't uh, it'd be a bit, bit more fiddly to find i can't imagine what it must have been like being inside a concrete dome like that with bullets and bits of shrapnel and stuff pinging off the outside just extraordinary extraordinary what uh, what the men did during this war Interestingly, the uh, the Germans who got those type of jobs actually wore body armor, so he would have uh, probably been wearing a, a breastplate, an armored breastplate, and a brow plate on his helmet, which made the front of his helmet bulletproof as well. Uh, so they did try to uh, to uh, enhance their chances of surviving inside one of these uh, these concrete uh, positions. Just unbelievable, isn't it? You occasionally see those bits of armor still turn up from time to time. I know that. Um that at uh, La Tommy Cafe in Pozier, there's a full set of German armour there that, that uh, the Dominic has found somewhere on the battlefield, but uh, just extraordinary relics. I'm and going Peter to tell you, is- I'm just going to oh, tell you a funny do. story. No, it's just because it's worthwhile. It's very comical. Uh, uh, I, for many years, ran a bed and breakfast here, and one of my guests found a big lump of one of these uh, these chest armour, but he had no idea what it was. And he, he opened the back of his car up and he said, Pete, I've got all this stuff in the back. I think it's most of it's bits of tractors and stuff. Uh, and I said, oh, yeah, it's all bits of tractors. And I saw it and I thought, oh, God, shall I tell him it's a bit of a tractor and he'll leave it here and then I can add it to my collection? I couldn't do it in the end. I had to tell him what it was. And I've always regretted that I didn't lie and say it's a bit of old tractor. It's not uh, part of a of the body armour. But he went away very, very happy. And I've never seen anybody find one since. It's a very rare bit of kit. There, were, there, there just weren't that many during the war and let alone ones that, uh, that survived. It's something that I think would have been discarded fairly readily by the, by the blokes who weren't a fan of it. But... Um, it's uh, yeah, just uh, you know, those those rare little links with history. Pete, amazing walk. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful area. Um, anything else we need to say about the region before we uh, before we finish? No, up? I always feel I've, I have not done these justice when there's so much to talk about, and I know that there's lots more in my notes. But uh, the the one thing to say is when you're at the Ulster Tower and you're looking across to the uh, the Valley of the Ork and across to the other side, if you get the 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 time of the year right you can actually still see the impression of the trenches on the other side of the valley which i think is extraordinary the chalk lines still zigzag across the fields on the other side of the valley it's one of the only places when the time is right and the light is right that you can physically see the trenches still marked in the in the in the crops and the fields so well worth having having a look well it's a good um, thing to do as well with your computer technology enables us to do this as well if you jump on google earth or, uh, or you know, Google Maps and, and use the satellite imagery and just go for a bit of a scroll around this area of the Somme battlefields, you will often see marks in the chalk indicating where the trenches were, really quite extraordinary. And I suppose it makes sense that it's it's brown topsoil and then the chalk underneath, and so the digging brought all the, the white chalk to the surface where it still remains. So it's, it's an extraordinary geographic feature that enables us to still see those trenches. So jump on Google Earth and just have a bit of a scan around this region. You'll be surprised by the numbers of shell holes, craters, and trench lines you can still see marked on the soil. Absolutely, yeah, and you can check them against the trench maps and have a look at the trench maps and you'll say, aha, that matches. Well, Pete, it's a really important piece of ground and uh, I, I, I don't think it's correct that you haven't done it justice. It's been, uh, it's been a wonderful walk uh, through a very, uh, very important piece of history. So thank you so much for joining us and, uh, and just sharing your thoughts. 
You know, it's a pleasure. It's been very enjoyable. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Boll & Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Boll & Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BollAndBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.